Welcome to My Cousin Jane, a podcast about Jane Austen and her works, with your host, Lee Phelan. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of My Cousin Jane. Each week, we look at the behind-the-scenes featurettes, deleted scenes, and interesting facts and historical context of a particular chapter in one of Jane Austen's books. And this week, we're looking at Pride and Prejudice, Chapter 11. And I just want to take a minute to give a big shout out to everyone who wrote in with words of support and encouragement after the last newsletter, and for those of you who've helped contribute with donations or other support. Thank you. This would not be possible without listeners like you. So in chapter 11, Jane is feeling well enough to join Elizabeth and the rest of the Netherfield gang down in the drawing room. After making sure Jane is warm enough, they start discussing Charles's idea of having a ball at Netherfield, and the rest of the evening is spent in a playful banter. Playful at least on Elizabeth's part. Let's jump in to the banter at the point where Caroline asks her brother about the ball. And as always, our audio clips come courtesy of Karen Savage and LibriVox.org. By the by, Charles... Are you really serious in meditating a dance at Netherfield? I would advise you, before you determine on it, to consult the wishes of the present party. I am much mistaken if there are not some among us to whom a ball would be rather a punishment than a pleasure. If you mean Darcy, cried her brother, he may go to bed if he chooses, before it begins. But as for the ball, it is quite a settled thing, and as soon as Nichols has made a white soup enough, I shall send round my cards. There are a lot of interesting things to discuss about Regency balls. We've talked about some of them in previous episodes, and we'll talk about a bunch more in the future. But today I want to talk about white soup. If you search for white soup recipes, you'll find a lot of, quote, Regency-inspired recipes for white soup. But one thing you'll notice about them is that they are all very different. That's because even during the Regency era, there were a lot of ways to make white soup. There were really fancy ways made by the aristocracy, or rather by their servants, as well as many versions of what we might think of as more economic recipes for white soup. Now, if you ask someone why white soup is called white, you'll hear a lot of different explanations. Some people claim that it was always made without red meat, but that wasn't even true in Regency times. Others claim that it's because of the ground almonds or the cream or some other ingredient that gives it more of a white tint. The fact is, it's impossible to say definitively, because you can easily find variations on this recipe that go back to the early 1600s, and many historians believe that the recipe originates all the way back in the Middle Ages. There's also some disagreement about how white soup was usually served at Regency balls. Some writers portray it as a traditional soup, where you would sit down at a table and eat it from a bowl with a spoon, while others convey the impression that it was served more like a warm punch. The only thing that can be said conclusively about white soup is that it usually looked white and could be made lots of different ways. If you want to know the kind of white soup that Jane Austen ate at home, you can grab a copy of Martha Lloyd's Household Book, a collection of handwritten recipes and medicinal remedies from Jane Austen's friend-slash-housekeeper, Martha Lloyd. Finding themselves very firmly on the more economic side of society, the white soup prepared by the Austen family was relatively simple. First, make a gravy out of any kind of meat... Add to that the yolks of four eggs boiled hard and pounded very fine, two ounces of sweet almonds pounded, and as much cream as will make it a good color. But for a more refined recipe, we can turn to the most popular cookbook of the early 19th century, A New System of Domestic Cookery by Maria Rundle. 
Though this book was first published in 1806, its recipes were in wide use around the British Isles before that time. So you first take a scrag of mutton, a knuckle of veal, after cutting off as much meat as will make collops, two or three shank bones of mutton nicely cleaned and a quarter of a pound a very fine undressed lean gammon of bacon, with a bunch of sweet herbs, a piece of lemon peel, two or three onions, three blades of mace, and a dessert spoonful of white pepper. Boil all in three quarts of water till the meat falls quite to pieces. Next day, take off the fat, clear the jelly from the sediment, and put it in a saucepan of the nicest tin. If macaroni is used, it should be added soon enough to get perfectly tender, after soaking in cold water. Vermicelli may be added after the thickening as it requires less time to do. Have ready the thickening which is to be made as follows. Blanch a quarter of a pound of sweet almonds and beat them to a paste in a marble mortar with a spoonful of water to prevent their oiling. Mince a large slice of dressed veal or chicken and beat it with a piece of stale white bread. Add all this to a pint of thick cream, a bit of fresh lemon peel and a blade of mace in the finest powder. Boil it a few minutes, add to it a pint of soup, and strain and pulp it through a coarse sieve. This thickening is then fit for putting it to the rest, which should boil for an hour afterwards. So clearly, the second version is much more involved. Not only does it require more expensive ingredients such as veal or mutton rather than, quote, any meat, it also requires more expensive spices and almonds, and the recipe is much more labor-intensive, requiring at least two days to make up a batch. The funny thing about serving white soup at balls in Regency times was that most people probably wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between soup made with a fancy recipe compared with a more economical one, because white soup at balls in Regency times were almost always spiked with negus. Negus is a type of mulled wine. It's a mixture of port wine, citrus, sugar, and sometimes spices like nutmeg. The main difference between Regency negus and modern mulled wine is negus was mixed with hot water to dilute it. Negus has a very interesting history and became really popular in the early 1700s, so popular that it's mentioned in the works of a variety of Regency and Victorian writers, including Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, Emily Bronte, Charlotte Bronte, William Thackeray, and even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And this definitely gives more weight to the served-as-a-warm-punch interpretation, especially when you consider Fanny Price's reflections at the end of her first ball in Mansfield Park. Creeping slowly up the principal staircase, pursued by the ceaseless country dance, feverish with hopes and fears, soup and negus, sore-footed and fatigued, restless and agitated, yet feeling, in spite of everything, that a ball was indeed delightful. Now, speaking of rooms and dancing, here's one more interesting clip from chapter 11. Miss Bingley made no answer, and soon afterwards she got up and walked about the room. Her figure was elegant, and she walked well. But Darcy, at whom it was all aimed, was still inflexibly studious. In the desperation of her feelings she resolved on one effort more, and turning to Elizabeth said, "'Miss Eliza Bennet, let me persuade you to follow my example and take a turn about the room. I assure you it is very refreshing after sitting so long in one attitude.' Elizabeth was surprised, but agreed to it immediately. Miss Bingley succeeded no less in the real object of her civility. Mr. Darcy looked up. The phrase take a turn about the room is so often quoted by people familiar with Pride and Prejudice that I wondered where it first originated. The earliest use of it I could find in English was in 1687, in a pamphlet by Roger Lestrange, whom you might know as the man who first translated Aesop's fables into English, 
though he had a rather interesting political career prior to that and translated many other important classical texts as well. But according to Google's Ingram graphs of the English language, while you do see the phrase appear in a few places in the 1700s and 1800s, the phrase wasn't really that popular in English writing until around the year 2005, when its usage rockets up exponentially. I can only assume this is due to the use of this line in the 2005 film adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Well, that wraps up this episode of My Cousin Jane. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to help support the show, please head over to leefalen.com slash mycousinjane, sign up for our newsletter, or click on the little donate button. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.